Matthew. Take your Bible this morning. Let's go to the book of Matthew in chapter 20. Matthew and the 20th chapter, if you will. Look at an event in the life of our Lord. Matthew chapter 20. We'll start reading with verse 20 of Matthew 20 and read down to verse 28. Matthew chapter 20. And verse 20, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. When the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. The greatest of the universe sought not to be great. He describes himself in Matthew chapter 11, I am meek and lowly of heart. Paul, I believe, gave the greatest compliment that could have been given to the Lord Jesus in Romans chapter 15 and verse 3 where he said, For even Christ pleased not himself. It is our tendency as human beings to desire attention. I remember preaching at a teen camp years ago and we were sitting in the cafeteria for lunch one day and they had a little platform there where they gave announcements, a microphone and uh, they would uh, have prayer and so on and a song before we ate. And, and so we sat down after all of that and began to eat. And suddenly a girl ran up to that microphone. She grabbed it and she said, attention, attention. And boy, we all, you know, stopped in the middle of a bite of food and looked at that platform and that girl who frantically was holding that microphone, wondering what in the world. And she waited till everyone looked and she said, thank you. I just love attention. It's our human tendency to want attention, to be honored, to be set above others. But do we truly desire to be like Jesus? If so, there's no room for us. If we desire to be like him, there's no room for us. Earthly pleasures vainly call me. I would be like Jesus. 
Nothing worldly shall enthrall me. I would be like Jesus. He has broken every fetter. I would be like Jesus, that my soul may serve him better. I would be like Jesus. All the way from earth to glory, I would be like Jesus, telling o'er and o'er the story. I would be like Jesus, that in heaven he may meet me. I would be like Jesus. And his words, well done, would greet me. I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. These disciples of Jesus were driven men. This was illustrated by the fact that they were willing to go to a martyr's death, serving their Lord. They were blessed men. God used them in marvelous ways. You read the Gospels, you read the book of Acts, and you marvel at how God took these human instruments of clay and empowered them to do such great work. In a human sense, these disciples were certainly worthy of some recognition. Things come to a head here in Matthew chapter 20 as the mother of James and John asks for some eternal recognition of her sons. But notice three rearrangements of their thinking that were needed. Perhaps we need a little rearranging of our thinking this morning when it comes to self. First of all, we see a secular expectation. In verse 25, Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Of course, lost people want power. People that do not know the Lord want authority. They want honor. They want worship. By the way, man has not lost his ability to worship. Man has not lost his, his ability to, to give worth. We've not dismissed the concept of God or authority. The question is not, is there a throne? The question is, who gets to sit on it? Everybody has a God. Everybody has a throne. Everybody has someone sitting on that throne of their life. But sadly, in the world's eye, in the world's concept of thinking, as the world goes about life, it is themselves that they put on that throne of worship. We worship the creature rather than the creator. It is us that wants the glory. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. We want to guide our own life. We want to be God of our life. As Second Peter chapter 3 informs us, knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. You see, man knows there's a God. Man knows that the Bible is true. There is no such thing as an atheist. I meet people, by the way, 29% of Americans claim to be atheists today. And you meet them, they'll say, oh, I'm an atheist. I always say, well, God doesn't believe you. <laughs> and that's fair. They don't believe in him. He doesn't believe in them. 
there's no such thing as an atheist because the things of God are clearly revealed to them. Even by his eternal uh, uh, Godhead, God has revealed himself to man. That was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And God, a man knows that the Bible is true because God's written it on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing them witness. So there's no such thing as an atheist. But you see, the reason we want to eliminate God, the reason we want to eliminate authority is because we want to be that authority. We want to walk after our own lusts. As Romans chapter 1 introduces that reprobate condition of a society, it says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. See, we know there's a God. We know there's a supreme being. We know that there's someone who created us. We understand all of that in our hearts. But the fact is, we want to be God of our own life. And so we see today in the secular world an expectation of honor. We see an expectation of glory going to man. We see the expectation of man being set on a pedestal. Government decisions are made today to serve government. Judicial decisions today protect the power of authority rather than the God-given rights of the human being. Secular leaders today are drunk on power. Their decisions destroy the very system that gives them the power. And God said it was going to happen. He said this, no, also in the latter days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. You see, when God points to the last days, he doesn't point to same-sex marriage. He doesn't point to crime on the street. He doesn't point to government corruption or financial collapse. He says, I'll tell you what will be the sign of the last day. People will be worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And we're there. We want to sit on the throne. That word perilous there in 2 Timothy 3.1, it means unraveled. This know also in the last days, perilous times shall come. Boy, I think we're there. Sure seems like it's unraveling to me. I mean, there's nothing that seems to be holding together today in our culture. Our government is unraveled. The economy is unraveled. Morals have unraveled. Ethics have unraveled. Religion is unraveling. The home is unraveling. Decency is unraveling. Everywhere you look, it's unraveled. Why? Because of a secular expectation that it's only me that really matters. But notice now how Jesus rearranges their thinking from this secular expectation. And he gives them a very stern exhortation. In verse 26, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Gentlemen, if we know the Lord's self-glory, pride, egoism, human worship is an abomination unto the Lord. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Boy, you know, when you're looking for illustrations of truth, you don't have to look much farther than the Bible. 
I mean, some of the Bible illustrations are amazing. God says, pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Well, let's see, how would I illustrate that? Well, back in the book of Daniel, O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and a majesty and glory and honor. Whom he would he slew, whom he would he put, he, he made alive, whom he would he set up, whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was disposed of his kingly throne. They took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. He was fed with the grass like the oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God ruled in the kingdom of men and appointeth over whomsoever he will. There's another illustration of a king over in the New Testament in Acts chapter 12. On a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, uh, sat upon a throne and made an oration. He gave a speech and the people gave a shout. It's the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Notice the order there. Most people die, and then the worms of corruption eat the flesh. Not this guy. The worms ate the flesh, and then he died. Why? He didn't give God the glory? Anything happened in your life or mine the last 24 hours that we didn't give God glory for? Boy, it's easy to serve God and kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Hey, I was a blessing. Boy, look what I accomplished for God. Be careful. Be careful. Here's a stern exhortation. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory do I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. We, we shudder to think of those religions in darkness today that are stooping down to wooden idols or stone gods, but I'm afraid sometimes we have our own idol. And it lives underneath our clothes. We wonder where the power in our lives has gone. We wonder why we have no power in preaching. We wonder why uh, 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 we do not see God blessing as we think he ought to. Maybe we need to look no further than the throne. Who sits on that throne of our life? I love Psalm 138, verse 6. It says, though the Lord be high. Well, I guess he's about as high as he can go. He's the creator of the universe. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Wow. If I were to ask you this morning, who do you respect? Well, I suppose it would depend upon the context of our conversation, would it not? If we were talking about music. I know very little about music. I sing like the guy in jail. I'm always behind a few bars, can't find the right key. We were talking to Brother Kenny about music. We might say, Brother Kenny, who do you respect as a piano player? I mean, Brother Kenny's pretty good. He, he, he can make that thing, he can make that thing talk. And he's pretty good. And, and, and we say, Brother Kenny, who do you respect? I'll guarantee you, he he would point to somebody that's even more skilled than he is. He he would point to somebody that's taken lessons longer or accomplished more. He He would look up 
to someone who is a, a, a gifted musician and would strive to perhaps pattern uh, uh, some of his skills after the skills of that one. If we were talking about sports, if you talk to a high school uh, basketball player and say, who do you respect? Well, he'd probably name a college player. A college player would name a professional player. In other words, we always look up, don't we? Who does God look up to? Though the Lord be high. There's nobody to look up to. Yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the rest of the verse says, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Friend, he may know you, but are you afar off in that relationship because of our pride? Here is a stern exhortation. We may have a position. We may have some longevity in that position. We may have some experience. We may have some knowledge. But like the Apostle Paul, our attitude must be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Thank God for those in this room that are accomplished in their work, that they're accomplished in the ministry, and they have been at it a long time, and, and they have seen God bless in wonderful ways. But all of us, whether we're just starting out in ministry or whether we've been around for a while, it's only by God's grace that we are what we are. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Paul said, what hast thou that thou dost not receive? Now if thou dost receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? John said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from above. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He didn't say without me, you can do a little bit. He didn't say without me, you can do some things. No, he said without me, you can do nothing. It shall not be so among you. You see, greatness is not the goal. Self-glory is not the goal. God is the goal. And so we see, finally, a servant exaltation. Jesus then begins to instruct in verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is a watershed moment in the teaching of Christ. You see, the disciples were thinking he was coming to set up an earthly kingdom. They thought this Messiah was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire. They thought that finally, here's this one that's going to deliver us. And, and no doubt, they thought as followers of him, hey, we're, we're going to be in a pretty good position here when all this happens. I mean, Jesus Christ is going to rule. He's the Messiah. We're convinced of it. And, and he's going to take over. And when he takes over this place, we're, we're going to be right there. They thought that he was coming as the lion to rule. And one day he will. But here he comes 
as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus did not come the first time to, to rule. He came as a savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was, he was, he was, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And, and who shall declare his generation? For he shall be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to make his soul an offering for sin. And so the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. When I survey the wondrous throne on which the Prince of Glory sits, my righteous deeds ascend above and a right-hand throne, my flesh insists. That's not what Isaac Watts wrote. No, he wrote, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Oh, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love. So amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Whatever your position this morning, whatever your opportunity this morning, whatever your place, serve. Serve your wife. Serve your children. Serve your church. Serve your neighbor. Serve your community. Serve your Savior. Not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not unto men. And gentlemen, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you've showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. When I was a teenager, I, I got saved when I was 15. Went to a public school and got wrapped up in myself. 
got wrapped up in playing sports, and of course that you know, would bring attention and all those kinds of things that go with it. So when I would go to church, sometimes I would carry that attitude with me. Sometimes at home as well, I would start to think of myself more highly than I ought to think. My mother had a little phrase she would use often on me. Whenever I'd get a little boastful or I would get a little above myself, she would say, John, when are you going to get off your high horse and come down and live with the rest of us? Sometimes at church, I thought I was a little bit more important than I was. We had a youth pastor. His name was Dwayne Gilbert. Dwayne Gilbert was a terrible preacher. He was a terrible leader. He was a horrible organizer. Our youth activities were dumb. I mean, they were terrible. We went because we had to. We sat in the youth group, Sunday school class, youth meetings. We, we had to listen to his sermons, but they, they were horrible. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you one thing Dwayne Gilbert ever taught. He was not a good preacher. He was not a good leader. He was not a good organizer. Brother Gilbert, however, had a, a compassion for us. He had a love for us. I don't know the condition of the hearts of others in the group. I I think I do, but my condition of heart was, I thought it was silly. I thought his demonstrations of of love toward us, of his compassion toward us were just kind of dumb. Brother Gilbert would hardly ever preach without crying. He would just have such a broken heart. And I looked at that as weakness. I looked at that as, you know, he just, he's weak. His favorite song in our youth chorus book was a song entitled Treasures. Maybe you've heard it one by one. He took them from me, all the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highway grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting, lift your empty hands to me. Then I held my hands toward heaven and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till I could contain no more. And at that, at last, I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. That was his favorite song. We sang it almost every Sunday. We sang it at every youth activity. And he would weep as we sang it. And I I thought, what is his problem? And I took that little chorus book that he had so diligently put together for us, and I took my pen. And there in that chorus book, all around that song, I, I, I drew tears, teardrops, put it all over the songbook. One night I got home from church and my dad said, Brother Gilbert has resigned. And I could tell by the tone of his voice he was not too excited about that. I was. 
But I could tell not to show any excitement at that point. I could tell that my father was grieved that the church had lost the youth pastor and that they would have to search for another. I never saw Dwayne Gilbert in the upcoming days. He packed his things, and within a few hours, he was out of town. Quite frankly, I didn't think much about him. We got another youth pastor. He was a little better. I never thought much about Dwayne Gilbert. Until one day, I was preaching a revival in St. Paul, Minnesota, Faith Baptist Church. Pastor Charles Johnston said to me when I arrived, he said, Brother Getch, the seminary, downtown Minneapolis, Central Baptist Seminary, would like you to come preach chapel. This was probably back in the maybe first part of the 80s. Fourth Baptist Church was a, a growing large church in the heart of Minneapolis. Central Baptist Seminary was a part of their ministry. He said, I'll, I'll take you. We'll, we'll go on Tuesday. They have a chapel service at 10. and They've asked you to preach. And I was thrilled for the opportunity. We got in the car. We drove downtown Minneapolis, and Fourth Baptist Church was located in, a, in an area that was beginning to deteriorate, and, and uh, the crime and such was, was getting quite bad there. In fact, they eventually moved out to Plymouth, Minnesota, where that church now is with a different name and so on. We got to the parking lot there, and we got out of the car, and we're walking up to the door, but it was locked. And it's the first time that I can recall ever going to a church where the door was locked. But it was because of the the crime and so on, they, they were locking the doors way back then. I remember there was a little, little buzzer there, something to uh, alert someone that you were at the door and the pastor rang that buzzer and, and soon the door opened. We could not see inside. There was kind of some smoked glass there. It was glass doors, but you could not see inside and the door opened. The man opening the door was Dwayne Gilbert. He was dressed in blue, a maintenance kind of a jumpsuit, name tag, Dwayne. He was the janitor of the Fourth Baptist Church, Minneapolis. Push that door open. And when I saw him, and he set his eyes on me, those tears began to flow from his eyes. Before I could hardly think or move, his arms wrapped around me in a huge hug. He said, John, I'm so glad to see you. I won't be able to be in the chapel service this morning, but they play it over the loudspeaker, and I'll be hearing it. And I'll be praying the whole time that God will use you. I remember walking to that chapel, feeling like I was about an eighth of an inch tall. I thought I should not be preaching this chapel. Brother Gilbert should be preaching this chapel. 
Because he had in his life something I didn't have. He understood this concept of servant. Even though at one time he had a position. And I I don't know what God's will in his life was, whether he should have ever been a youth pastor. We could discuss that or think about that till eternity. But the point is that Brother Gilbert was willing to serve. And even when God placed him in a ministry of cleaning bathrooms and sweeping hallways, he was still serving the one he loved. Gentlemen, regardless of your position or your experience or your knowledge, the world is going to seek the honor. The world wants attention. We see the athletes, they make one simple play, and it's like, come on, come on. It shall not be so among you. Even Christ pleased not himself. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's go from this men's meeting as ministers of Christ, as servants of the Lord. Oh, how God can bless that and use that. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to lay down his life, become obedient unto death, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. Oh, Lord, may we. Yes, we're dads. Yes, we're the head of our home. Yes, we may be a deacon or a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary. We may be a Sunday school teacher. We may have some position at work or in the community, but God, we are just ministers. We are just vessels. Lord, we desire to be vessels of honor. That, Lord, you might use us as your servants. While the world clamors for power and clamors for worship and clamors for our attention, may we, Lord, humbly serve. May we grab hold of the bottom rung of the ladder. For, Lord, one day you're going to turn the ladder around. He that exalteth himself should be abased, but he that humbleth himself should be exalted. May we humble ourselves to serve. May it start at home with our families. May it creep into our churches. May it show itself in our communities. May, Lord, you use us as we serve. Perhaps this morning as heads are bowed, We need to rearrange some thinking. We need to rearrange how we look at ourselves and look at ourselves as Christ would have us look. Brother Kenny's going to begin to play. We'll just open the invitation for a moment.